You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. All right. So it's weird to do this on a Monday, right? Like it's on the actual right. work day. It was a work day. Yeah. I had to, like, write motions and stuff. I don't like that. I don't like that whole working thing. I took yeah, money from people. Great. No, it's really kind of a pain in the butt, you know. They pay me a salary and then expect me to do stuff for them. That's really inconvenient. <laughs> I know. I, I We should be able to... Uh... Should be able to farm it out to a peasant class for <laughs> in for protection from us. Well, that is what we used to do, but that, uh, uh, that is now frowned upon. <laughs> I don't know. I think Under most moral systems, <laughs> ever, ever so slightly frowned upon. Yeah, I think if I think if the winds of winter is so good. The entire nation is just going to cosplay as feudalists and just act to go back to feudalism that way. No, nah, that's a terrible idea. But I do like your, I like where your head's at. Nah. I have no hope Basically, for that book whole, whatsoever. None whatsoever. The whole, the whole point of Game of Thrones is that feudalism yeah, yeah, is terrible bad. for everybody. <laughs> like I know but we all like the characters so much that we want to be. I don't know. There are a lot of people in the fan base that defend the Red Wedding. I mean, it's. No, I'm just saying, like, if you're just a regular dude living in Westeros, life would be terrible. Oh, it's awful. It, it, like, just awful. Like, I, that's the point of the book. Like, it's just the citizenry, things are bad. It doesn't matter who's in charge. Yeah, it doesn't matter who's in charge. The small folks keep getting, you know, hammered by the good guys. Look, so far as the everyday Westerosian goes, if you watch the shows, the only reason you see the same faces over and over again is because, well, they they found the extras that they liked and, and could work with, and they just wanted to keep them around. So, But usually, yeah, they, 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 average they, Joe they, would have started in the first book and not made it to the fifth book. So Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, they yeah, did, was- uh, the show treated the uh, the small folk with kid gloves compared to what happened in the book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just awful stuff. I mean, that's why the whole story of uh, what's her face when you know her, her being a peasant is a lot worse in the book because they really get into what goes on for people. oh Arya. Yeah, Arya's story yeah, that's is really bad. That's and also it's why my favorite. If they say like, "What group would you be a part of?" Like everyone's like, "What's your house?" kind of thing. I'm a Brotherhood without banners guy. Oh, F the system. That. Bring it down. Bring it down. I love them. They are all bad. Although they got corrupted. They're bad now. They got corrupted by resurrected Catelyn Stark, who just turned them into revenge robots. that exciting bit of the political ramifications of the game of thrones we instead <laughs> move on to the sneaky good podcast i am poser 
with here, as always, my engineer, Chris. How's it going, Chris? It's going. And joining us this week, now, I guess, is as a regular, as always. I oh, yeah, I got that. nothing else to do. Yeah, you've been promoted. <laughs> How's it going, Max? It's going all right. They uh, They won a game. Yeah, winning is better than losing. Convincingly won a game. Yeah. Let's, uh, there was a moment, like right late in the second quarter, right after the interception, South Carolina you know, kind of stalls out a bit, but it's 17 to 10. LSU has the football around midfield. It's third and about five. They're at midfield, and they score a touchdown on that play. They you know, throw the ball, and Terrence Marshall scores a touchdown, makes it 24 10. Two plays later, Ricks has his pick six, and it's 31 10, and the route's on. But let's go into our wayback machine for a second. You're at 17 to 10. If they don't convert that third and five, it is a totally different football game. I mean, yeah, probably. They, they weren't really stopping anybody. Yeah, if South Carolina gets the ball back, the drive down the field, they make it 17 to 17 going into the half and get the ball to start the, the second half. They score on both possessions. Let's, let's not lie to ourselves. I, I mean, that is a complete change of the game that is how quickly things can change like this game believe it or not could have been a very close game and instead it's a laugher and it happened in the span of like three plays yeah that's how it happens i mean these the thing people don't understand about blowouts a lot of the time is that if you play the same game like 10 times it's a lot of these games end up close in you know alternate universes it's it's not like they're just blowouts from the first snap that's honestly what happened in the missouri game um lsu was up by 10 they had a chance yeah. to go up 17 didn't do it missouri comes back turns it into a close game and then it becomes a slugfest in the second half if lsu can put that game away in the second quarter go up 17 they probably win that game by maybe 20 30 points it's yeah. just that that mental thing of once you're in a close game, you're in a close game. Yeah, it, it really is a thing. It's it's impossible to quantify too, which is the frustrating thing about it. But it's very real. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I, I do like analytics. I think analytics matter. I'm a. I mean, I have a weekly stat column. I was right about it. But I do think people who approach the game from an analytics standpoint kind of forget that there are these action points in games or these pivot points that matter so much the line between a blowout and a close game is a lot closer than we think yeah yeah and and so it's like stats can be incredibly misleading is the thing is they make sense over time like over a season stats don't lie in a game they certainly do i think analytics are better for individual player and unit performance that and predicting how they'll perform in the future than they are explaining what happened in a game. That's actually a good thing. They're better at predictive than they are at describing. And it's sort of like what you want out of stats. It's like, do you want this to be, do you want stats to be predictive or do you want them to be reflective? And for game stats and stuff, I want stats that tell me the story. I don't want them to be predictive. That's useless to me. I already know what happened. The final score is 52 to 24. But if I'm, you know, a gambler, <laughs> which I also am, I want stats that are predictive that I can use in the future. But that isn't really helpful when talking about the game. I, I really dislike because this is kind of something that's creeped into analytics Twitter of, oh well, this team should have won, 
or this game doesn't – they start treating losses as, well, they dominated the scoreboard, so they actually won. This isn't a real win. Wins are wins. That's the point of playing the game. Yeah. Like to use the Indiana example, I think uh, I saw somewhere that Indiana, based on the stats, only had a twenty percent chance of winning the game, or something like that. Okay. Which is cool yeah. to show you that you know how unlikely it was they won, but that doesn't make it any less of a win. It counts the same as any other win, right? And I mean, yeah, but if they had just listened to analytics, they kneel. Penn State kneels the ball and they win. Yeah, dude, just kneel the ball, but. But he was in. They lost. Uh, um, it still counts. I, I mean, look, I'm not gonna like. I don't think it is. It it would be wise to use that game and say, "Hey guys, look, Indiana's, you know, legit. They're like a top." No, of course team. not. But I don't think anyone thinks that. I, it's right, more like, "Hey, true. look how cool the win is." But at the end of the day, it still counts as a win. You can't just card up and say, "Wow, they had a lot of good fortune to win the game." Well, yeah, of course they did. They're Indiana. <laughs> like we know that. I didn't watch the game, and I know they had a bunch of good fortune to win because Indiana never wins those games. Yeah, they deserved it. They and they're always so close. Yeah, God, that is a fan base that is really taken in the shorts. And honestly, on the subject, so is South Carolina, uh, and but part of that is that their head coach is Will Muschamp. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what they get for uh, for winning the Jordan Birch recruiting battle. But I'm not that mad about that because BJ Ojolari is amazing. Yeah, you, you can. This is, you know, when we get on the things that you shouldn't be too obsessed at after I've ranted a little bit about analytics, Twitter, recruiting Twitter. Again, recruiting matters. It is the most important yeah. thing about building a football yes. team. Your Johnnies and Joes are more important than X's and O's. I totally agree with that. Especially That's, college. That is so true. The, and yeah, because you can control. And also, the difference in recruiting now than compared to 20 years ago is massive the top teams have completely separated away away from the pack the gap in talent is much larger than it has ever been uh all of that said winning individual recruiting battles do not matter no it, it, it as long as get look as long as it's not part of a, a broader trend if a, yes. if a kid comes from an area and he's a, a top kid and he just wants to stay home sometimes that happens whatever Exactly. Like Birch, hey, that was the guy I wanted as well when following recruiting. But at the end of the time, time we got Ojolari. Everything works yeah. out. But South and Carolina honestly, still gets to lose. And I mean, you, the best example, of course, is you know the running backs. You know where I we went all in for uh, Cam Akers. Cam yeah, Akers doesn't a, come. We slow play Travis Etienne, who's still great at Clemson. And we're all bemoaning it. I know I wrote a ton about it, about how terrible of a job we did. And, oh, yeah, our consolation prize was Clyde Edwards-Elair. Anyone upset about that now? Three years later? Anyone feeling bad? Nope. Didn't think so. No, not remotely. <laughs> so you cannot get obsessed by one player. It does not matter. Now, a class matters. And, yeah, and you're right. If it's part of a broader trend, you're in trouble. Like, that's when it starts to matter. Yeah, you don't want to be USC, who's losing recruiting battle after recruiting battle to teams from out of state. Like, that's a problem. Yeah, and I, I think that's, and that's when you have a big problem. And that's why Alabama is so good, because they have a number one recruiting class every year. And at the end of the day, you cannot compete with that. I was thinking about it earlier. I think if they were, let's say they were playing a, um, even like, let's say they were playing Vanderbilt, right? If I were to if I were to be the offensive coordinator for a game and call it and call the game, call the plays, I still think they would win. 
If you were calling it for Alabama? Yeah. Like, I mean, I could just look at the film and say, all right, here are the concepts. They run. Cover, cover Devontae Smith. That is pretty much the gap in talent. That is how... They should start, yeah. they should raffle off offensive coordinator for a game just to just to to flex on everybody how much more talented they are. Hey, we need to build a new building. Who wants to be offensive coordinator for the season? <laughs> you know, yeah, like because there's no way you could like out scheme an actual college coach, and I do think there is a limit to it because I think uh, Bo Pelini is proving yeah. that you can't just throw the guys out there and play. Um, you do need some competence. At playing, but yeah, the gap in talent between Alabama and Vanderbilt, yeah, I, I think you might be able to pull that one off. Well, see, the the system would already have to be installed. I couldn't teach it if it's already taught, and I'm just yeah, yeah. plays. I think I could do it. I mean, but yeah, let's let's play like this. If you go to two four seven sports, which uh, you know, probably probably the recruiting site right now, they have yeah. their college football team talent rankings where they just rank schools by how much talent they have recruited there's no judgment calls on since they've gotten to school south carolina is ranked 21st at 775 points they have two five stars and 25 four stars all right lsu has seven five stars and 35 four stars so not quite twice as many blue chips but close to it and they rank at 875 points and they're sixth in the nation. So the gap in talent is huge. But remember, that's between sixth and 21st. But we're yeah. we're 100 points apart. We're in different time zones. All right. Now let's put this all in perspective. Alabama's number two. They have 985 points, 110 wow. points ahead of LSU. They have 12 five-star players, 58 four-stars for a total of 70 blue-chip players compared to LSU's 42. And they're only ranked second in the nation. Georgia technically has a more talented roster. Yeah, except the, for one position. Yeah. The way they have recruited, the gap between LSU and Alabama in talent is greater than the gap between LSU and South Carolina. See, that concerns me. But, like, at the same time. It shouldn't you... because Alabama's on their own planet. I, yeah. This is not an LSU problem. I, If I can get one thing through everybody's head is how far ahead of the field Alabama and Ohio State are. And now Georgia somehow well, has gotten I, in there with recruiting. But they haven't converted into wins, so let's put them behind. I think if LSU had switched places, for instance, with Ohio State in the Big Ten, they're probably, they've probably made three or four college football playoffs by now. Yeah. I mean, if we're Oklahoma, I, we, we make it every year. We play Alabama every year. Everybody else doesn't. That's the problem. And not only do you have to play Alabama, you have to play Alabama in your division. Yeah, that's 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 ridiculous. It, it's it's crazy. And so people hold LSU up to the standard of, like, why can't you do this stuff? It's because you have the greatest college football dynasty of all time in your division. And I don't mean, like, Alabama's the greatest football program ever. I mean – Nick Saban's Alabama team yeah. is the best college football team ever. It is – they are killing it when recruiting, and we're doing a better job keeping up than anybody. And even then, they're still well ahead. And I don't think that reflects poorly on LSU. That's how great Alabama is. I, I, I think people just kind of lose focus on that. We're recruiting better than Florida. You know, We're ahead of Oklahoma. We're – as much as people talk about AM stuff, we're ahead of AM, we're ahead of Auburn. 
We're ahead of all those goals. And also, we're ahead of those teams on titles. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, especially Auburn. But this year's team is really the first one in about, I don't want to say the first team in 20 years to really struggle because Orgeron's first team struggled. 2008 was a bit of a struggle. But this is looking like one of, I hate to use the term worst, but it is because it's a comparative. This is looking like the worst LSU team in the last 20 years. Yeah. And it, and even yeah. with that said, they just beat South Carolina by 28 points. And South, a South Carolina team that last week beat Auburn. Yeah, but I think this year – you can't. You cannot look at. Oh, this team did this against this team. You th- you got to throw it in the garbage. Yeah, but also South Carolina's not a bad team. Is what I'm saying. Th- this no. isn't Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt's yeah. a bad team. Maybe Vanderbilt 41-7, just like LSU did. Yeah. Uh, look, South Carolina played Florida tough. They, I think they lost by two scores. They could have won. They could have won that game if they just didn't drop passes. They dropped like ten passes. Yeah. I, the point here is like LSU beat a good team by 28 points. At least they're and, not a bad team. And we're talking about how this is objectively one of the worst teams on this campus in 20 years. So I know we have torches and pitchforks out for Bo Pelini. Um, he he is doing a bad job, and I'm not backing down from him doing a bad job. All of that said, things could be a lot, lot – if this is your worst-case scenario, things are going great. Yeah, well, I mean, thanks in large part to uh, my boy Steve Ensminger, who's done just such a good job this year. Yeah, I, I mean, talk about a disrespected guy. And and honestly, like when Orgeron first got hired, the first thing he did was unleash Ensminger. They, you know, they had that huge game against Missouri in his first game when he was the interim head coach. And, you know, so Ensminger immediately, revol- I don't want to say revolutionized the offense, but he immediately got gains out of the offense. Yeah, he, significantly. Changed, he changed the way they call plays. I mean, th- he kind of changed the play calling philosophy. They were a fair bit more pass heavy on early downs. Although they kind of got blown up a little bit against Alabama because they just didn't have the infrastructure yeah, uh, yeah, with it, uh, which is you know whatever. Uh, you but know, even and, when they lost to Florida, they put up like four hundred yards and you know fumbled twice in the red zone. I mean, that's not his fault. He's not dropping the ball. And I also don't want to take credit away from Brady. Brady is a star in this game for yeah. a reason. Yeah, he's but, he's he's a one and done in Carolina too. But that said. Ensminger has done a lot of this too. I don't want to. You can give Brady credit without stealing all of the credit for Ensminger. Like he was just some dope who was standing there with a clipboard. Right, and I think the the if you really want to see what Steve Ensminger like, Joe Brady came in and installed a lot of great concepts and philosophies. Uh, he was very much you know an architect of all of this. But if you watch the the Peach Bowl or not the Peach Bowl, the um. Uh, Fiesta Bowl against UCF, you start to see a lot of the stuff that was already being done under Ensminger before Brady even got there. So, like, so that was the moment I knew that when Brady left, Ensminger was going to be able to keep it going, at least schematically. Yeah, and I also like how he, I don't want to say he radically changed the offense this week, but you could tell he knew he had a different quarterback oh, who had a different skill set. And he ran d- different plays because he played to his court, his quarterback strengths. Yeah, I mean, he really like. I don't want to. I don't want to say. I don't want to diminish what TJ Finley did because what he did was unbelievable, uh, especially given what he was asked. But like, he really understood that you can't 
just throw this kid into the fire and ask him to make the same complex reads and throws that Miles Brennan's going to make. And yeah. you know, he kept things simple for him. He kept him on rhythm. And it, look, I don't think that happens in the past. I mean, you remember when Brandon Harris. Brandon Harris. I mean, the Brandon Harris-Auburn fiasco, especially when they had the week before where they could have played him against New Mexico State and didn't, is one of the all-time great coaching blunders. Yeah, really. Uh, ju- just because you had this free week where you could – your quarterback was obviously struggling, you know, put in the, put in the kid, let him get his feet wet at home against an outmatched opponent. And instead they don't do that. And his first start is on the road at Auburn. And that's just setting up a kid to fail. And this was the total opposite. They set a kid up to succeed. And, you know, the coaches get a lot of credit for that. They, even that first drive, it was so run heavy and they just kind of slowly introduced more passes into the game. And, Look, Finley made his reads, but he also creates some of those reads. You know, he he's – I'm not going to say that he's the most dangerous runner in the SEC or anything, but he is at least a threat to run – you had to at least respect it a little he bit. He can move I'm, around, yeah. Honestly, he reminded me a lot of Burrow. Oh, well, maybe you as know, an athlete, but like – Yeah, no, I'm not talking about from the running standpoint. Like Burrow could run a little bit. You know, he gives that defense that, oh, if I over-pursue my, my blitz – you know, this guy's going to be, I'm talking more junior, junior year Burrow, not senior year uh, Burrow. Well, I mean, you know. junior year Burrow is, the, he was kind of, he was kind of like, the offensive line was really bad, uh, and the protection schemes were really bad, but at the same time, like, he kind of made a lot of his own pressure, and he kind of had to figure it out, and then became the best quarterback I've ever seen against pressure and handling pressure. But oh, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not talking like a how he throws the ball, and I'm not talking about like his senior, you know, the senior year stuff. Yeah. I'm more talking like it, how he could create with his legs, just a little like that level of running. He he, he was a good runner, not a great runner. And, yeah, you know, I mean, but honestly, I compare it more to what Danny Etling did when Matt Canada started calling all those, you know, designed runs three quarters of the way through the year. Yeah, but you always thought Etling was going to get killed. Yeah, uh, at least I did. I, I mean, yeah, that, I yeah. that too, but I mean, t- nobody's going to kill TJ Finley. Yeah, he the guy's just he, he's so big back there. Uh, like it's definitely he's bigger than him. He's I mean he's taller, uh, but he looks a lot like Ryan Perilou back there. Um, it's funny because Ryan Perilou never panned out at LSU, but he was the big five star recruit. He was supposed to be yeah. the big, and TJ Finley was like he's wearing number eleven. You're like yeah, you know, it, it's like a. Uh, you, you only had to wait 15 years, but, you know, you finally got what Perilou was supposed to be. Yeah, TJ particularly, from, particularly from the look of him. Like, he looks like a linebacker yeah, underneath center. He's gigantic. I still vehemently do not think he should start if Brennan is healthy. See, and I think this is the big thing. A, I don't think Brennan's healthy. Uh, well, that's, torn, that's abdomen, torn abdomen is a much more serious injury than we like to think. That is your core. I mean, that is a a big injury, but even, uh, yeah, if he's not hurt, you know, we never even have the discussion, but I also think of this, if 2020 is a mulligan, can we all agree on that? This is the mulligan season. Yes. Kind of. Okay. So it doesn't really matter how the team does. This is a freebie. Like, okay. You don't want to go, you know, you don't want the team to finish two and eight, but at the same time, like no one is thinking this team's going to win the SEC title. It, it, that's that's gone. Yeah, that's out of that's like that's mathematically basically over. 
everything you're doing is building to 2021. Yeah. And do you think Brennan is good enough to leave early for the NFL? Not even close. I don't think so either. Okay, what? he's a G- Okay, he's a junior, all right? So he's going to be back next year as a senior. Do you think next year as a senior, TJ Finley is going to back him up as a sophomore? Uh, I mean, probably not. No, I don't think so either. And so I think Brennan is going to transfer regardless at the end of this year. No, because I don't think – well, I don't because I think he starts next year. See, I think TJ Finley is going to start next year because he kind of has to. Or if Brennan is the starter next year, you lose either TJ Finley – or um, Max Johnson, or maybe both. Yeah, the I mean, transfer portal. With Garrett Nussmeyer and Max or uh, Garrett Nussmeyer, and then the year after Walker Howard coming in, I don't really have a problem with that. So the question is: Is do you want? I think for me is, I think it's not a matter of if, but when Brennan loses his job. So if we're building for next year anyway, might as well throw it whole hog right now. Why? It's particularly because you have a cover story. You can just say Brennan's hurt. You can yeah. stay hurt there the whole year, and it looks a lot better than having to transfer because you lost your job. You can say, hey, I was hurt. This new guy's now taking the job. I'm going to transfer. I keep my whole year of eligibility. I get two years wherever I want to go. You know, thank you know, thanks for the memories. I, I, I think I think that's best for both LSU and for Miles Brennan. I think that but, would be true if TJ Finley were as good as Miles Brennan, and he isn't. See, and I think TJ Finley – at this exact moment, Miles Brennan's the better quarterback. I think talent-wise, T.J. Finley is a more talented player. Well, I mean, T.J. Finley, the only thing he has that Brennan doesn't is a slightly – is he's slightly more athletic, which, I mean, look, that's a big difference. But the the difference between Miles Brennan and T.J. Finley right now is actually fairly large. When you, when you start looking underneath the surface and you start looking underneath – kind of the general feel of what happened um not only that but like we all here's what i will say if miles i will say two things one this raises the threshold for what miles brendan has to be feeling like to play it makes it easier to say you know what you're not healthy like you can go you you can you can wait until he's 100 percent. and will he be 100 percent before the end of the year probably not but at the same time, we haven't seen T.J. Finley really have to do anything difficult. I mean, they raised their RPO percentage from 9 to 25, which is a gigantic, gigantic increase. Yeah, because you're running – you know, he's got a different skill set. But also, you're right. We haven't seen him have to play on the road you know, against a tough team. And also, again, whoever has to play the Alabama game, that's – I'm not the counting mo- the mo- I'm not counting it. That, yeah, I'm not counting it either. Yeah, I, I do count the Auburn game. Yeah, that's very good. I think Finland, Finley's going to start that game. I don't think Brennan's going to play. I, I think a lot of it has to do with, like we were, you were saying, how far along is Brennan coming throughout the course of the season? But also, okay, so yeah, we're going to throw a mulligan on the Alabama game, but what you have to consider is what will the Alabama game do to Finley or Johnson if one of them is, in fact, the starter for that game? Like, how are they going to be able to handle it? I think that is going to play a big role into the scenario you guys are looking at of what happens at the end of the season. I think you're absolutely right. I do think it's a lot different if you play the Bama game like it's not Brandon to use the Brandon Harris example. It's not Brandon Harris going to Auburn in his first start. Right, there is that. It's, it's like TJ Finley will have two games under his belt if he has to play. If he has to start that game, 
I also don't like the look of giving TJ Finley the start this week. You, you go two weeks with Finley, take a week off, and then you bring Brennan back to get to be a sacrificial lamb to Alabama. I mean that that's also a pretty bad look. I mean, what does that do to Brennan? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that is tough. Um, I uh, I would ret. Here's the thing: if Brennan's not, the, you're going to go into the Alabama game knowing your quarterback's going to get crunched. If Brennan's not like legitimately healthy for that one. It, it becomes a matter of safety at that point. And even though it may really screw with TJ Finley's development, it also may not because, you know, we've seen court like Joe Burrow, not to compare him to Joe Burrow, but Burrow got murdered by Alabama in 2018. Like it, those kinds of games can be overcome if you have good people developing your quarterbacks. They can't if Les Miles is doing it. But the thing is, it's the difference right now between Finley and Brennan in terms of actual quarterback ability from what we have to see is actually pretty massive. Like miles Brennan is a clear, better passer. PFF had right of among quarterbacks who've started like more than one game. So I'm taking Graham Mertz and uh, Justin Fields out of this. Right. Um, miles Brennan is the fourth highest graded power five passer behind Mac Jones, Spencer Rattler and Trevor Lawrence and ahead of everyone else. I mean, the guy is flat out good. Yeah, he's flat out really good. In that case, he's going to the NFL. Well, no, because if one, he's it's fourth... a super crowded class. Two, I, I don't think he, I think he's going to play maybe like two or three more games. So I think you go into the off season with those two guys, while with Brendan not being on good enough footing to go to the NFL, but certainly not nearly bad enough putting to lose his job. I think what's going to happen is Finley's probably going to transfer. And I think that's just going to be fine. See, and for me, I always want the upperclassmen to transfer rather than the, than the, the underclassmen. And look, you know, you have the same problem on the defensive line. I mean, even though it's much clearer, BJ Ojolari is, is better. Um, but, you know, Ali Gay is came in as a Juco transfer. We were talking about how great he was and, he kind of got relegated to the bench so BJ Ojolari can play. And that's just what happens. Yeah. I mean, but again, these are good problems to have. I don't yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, no one is concerned about guys getting benched when it's – this is the Spurrier thing. Like, as Spurrier says, you guys never jump down my throat when I bench the running back. But if I change the quarterback, everybody, you know, you know throws a panic party. And right. I think what it comes down to is – I don't think I think Brennan's at his ceiling. I don't think he can get any better than he is. I'm at um, ceiling though. See, and I, and I, I just don't believe he's the fourth best quarterback in college football. Well, no, I don't uh, necessarily uh, think he's the best quarterback, but I think he's good enough. The fact that he's good enough to grade out there at all suggests that he's pretty good. But yeah, what I, you look, my opinion on Brennan was basically like I do want to see him against better defenses. And my opinion wouldn't be fully formed until then. So look, we're going to find out about Finley. But I yeah, think if Finley goes out and he struggles against, and he struggles when his hand isn't, you know, being held by RPOs and general single key reads in the quick game, and he starts to really struggle, I just don't think he can take Brendan's job away for next year because he's an underclassman, because Finley's an underclassman, especially when you have. An even better underclassman, a guy who's capable of being better than both of them in Nussmeyer eventually, and a guy who's even better than him in Walker Howard the year after. 
Yeah, see, I, that's way too speculative. I'm not even going to talk about it. It's a little speculative. I mean, I mean, we're talking about guys who aren't even on the roster. I mean, that's that's silly. I just I wouldn't. Mean, I that just is wouldn't that is beyond counting your chickens before they've hatched. They haven't even laid his eggs yet. Um, I think the difference is with with Finley and Brennan when it comes down to I think our difference of opinion is who, not who the better quarterback is now because I think we both agree that if Brennan is the better quarterback right now today you know, in October, year of our Lord, 2020. To us, the difference is who's the better quarterback in 2021. And I think going forward, I'd rather have the duo of Finley and Max Johnson than have Brennan and neither of those two. See, the thing is, I I think it is too early to move off of the default that is Miles Brennan. I will change it. Look, if he goes out and he rips Auburn and he is – even decent against Alabama, and he's just really good against the rest of the schedule. I'll throw this opinion in the garbage because yeah, it, it's got well, a yeah. TBD asterisk to it, but not, it's not enough to move off of the default, which is pretty good. And see, and my thing is like, also, Brennan's hurt, and I don't want him to get more hurt. And also, I think it's like I'm a big fan of it's a mulligan season. See what you got. If TJ, I'll say the same thing. I can move off my opinion. I want to see Finley play against Auburn because I want to see how he plays against. A good defense. So do I. I, I. I like. I am very much looking forward to seeing him against Auburn, and I do not think that Miles Brennan should play because you're not recovering in like three weeks from a torn abdomen. I mean, yeah, that, that. Yeah, that's exactly. And this is invaluable experience for a guy. Right, uh, and I, and but I do want like I very ideally I would like to see Miles Brennan play against Texas A and M. And Ole Miss to end the year. I would love that. Yeah, that would be nice if you get down to the end of it. You can get Brennan some snaps and you say, oh, you're healthy. Hey, look, this guy's healthy and he can still sling the ball. And you open again in spring and see what happens. Yeah. Or, you know, you've given him the best possible chance to enter the window with the best resume possible. Either way. Yeah, but I, I, I see the thing is, especially given TJ Finley's high school production, which is the only thing I have to go on beyond, you know, a, a yeah, game well, he wasn't asked to do a lot. Miles Brennan seems to be better. Sam, but again, well, that could be thrown in the garbage in the next couple of weeks. There is yeah. a, a qualifier of it being too early to tell. Yeah, and I agree. Same from my end. It's for me. It's like I want the data for both of them, and I, this is a great opportunity for LSU to find out what they have. Yeah, it really is, and I think especially considering that we've both entered mulligan territory and the fact that we're throwing the results of the season away, we can kind of watch all of this unfold for the future without the, you know, the emotional stakes attached to the outcomes of the game, which is going to be pretty fun. Yeah. And I I think that's the other thing is like, it kind of gives both these quarterbacks a chance to develop without a ton of pressure. I mean, there's still pressure to win every game because see how everybody freaks out when you lose the Missouri. Um, that said, these guys can both – nothing's going to ruin them this year, and they get a chance to get reps, and you just basically see what you have because at the end of the year, it's just – we're playing for 2021. So you're saying, okay, what do we have? And you can look at the 2020, this entire audition tape, and then make an informed choice at the end of the year. Right, but I think Miles Brennan is – he, just because he would be going into his senior year is still part of that, just as much part of that equation as Finley. And yes, it is a little bit early to kind of count my eggs before they're laid, but mm. I, I think LSU is recruiting quarterbacks in a way 
that ensures they will not be hung out to dry if they lose Finley, Johnson, or both. Yeah, I just don't like to lose both of them. But also, let's play like this. I do think someone is transferring at the end of this year. Yeah, One of those three guys. It's going to be Max Johnson. It's going to be Max Johnson. I I think the best case scenario is Brennan is your, you know, comes back in late November, tears it up. He's your starter in 2021. Finley's your starter in 2022. And Max Johnson is is the guy who goes in the portal. That is the best case scenario. Yeah, Um, that's great. That's a, that would be. Everybody's thrilled with that one. Uh, I just don't think that's how things normally work out. Either way, I think like I think LSU like it, the fact that another potential like I did not consider TJ Finley a potential viable starter for the future, but I do now. Um, and, and look, maybe that gets thrown in the garbage in a couple weeks, but the emergence of another potential guy is is certainly a good thing. Yeah, and, I, and I shouldn't and as pro as in the you know in the pro Brennan camp as I am I do not want to diminish the fact that TJ Finley doing anything competently um given the fact that he was thrust into this with a a sham of an offseason and limited on-field reps in SEC competition was pretty was well not pretty impressive it was extremely impressive I mean the guy's got the guy should take a a huge bow for what he did, even if even if he's terrible for the rest of the year. No, I agree with that, and and that's the other thing. It's like if he, if he bombs out at Auburn, obviously go back to Brennan. Um, but I think this is really a cool opportunity that everybody's yeah. kind of in grant, and you have the cover story. Like it's not even a cover story. It's like these guys really do push their bodies to the limit. It's nice yeah. to give to tell a quarterback a position that's almost rushed back more than any other because quarterbacks are so vital to your team. Right. It's like, Hey, take the extra week. It's cool. And also if he gets this week, he gets next week. So yeah. I do think, I, I do think the most logical time for Brennan to return is Alabama. And it depends on how TJ Finley plays against Auburn, whether who, who's playing the Alabama game. Yeah. But I, I think whoever plays against Alabama is getting sacked like seven times. Oh, I, I agree with that. But you know, you, you deal with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think anybody really cares that much. I, I mean, yeah, you want to win, but I, I don't think these guys are going to like thinking that that's a bad gig. They both no. want to play. They they both want to play that game. No, and the thing about the Auburn game is one. Yes, it is on the road, but it's obviously minimum capacity, so he's not in a Brandon Harris situation. He's got to start under his belt, uh, and. Are we sure that Auburn's really going to be able to cover Gilbert and Marshall? Because uh, no, Jeray uh, Jenkins. Jure, yeah, he he had his best game of the year. I, and speaking of like letting freshmen come out there, they're kind of. I mean, it looks like McMath has kind of fallen down the depth chart, but then against one game, so I don't want to yeah. say that. It, they've been very flexible yeah. with. Hey, who's the hot hand today? And it looks like they've kind of based it off of who's having a good week of practice. Yeah. They come out with entirely different looks personnel-wise each week. You know, it's Bouti, it's you know Jenkins, it's McMath. Everybody's getting – the only consistent, of course, is Marshall, who is just – real. Uh, yeah. Gilbert yeah. didn't really Wall- factor in much into this game, but I'm not reading too much into that. Wait, what happened? Gilbert didn't factor much into this game, but I'm oh, not Oh, no, but I, th- I think – that was in large part due to the fact, due to the kind of the stuff they're calling. And he's not, he's a factor in the RPO game, but not as much as the receivers are. Like if they're throwing the, uh, I mean, if they, 
like you, if you go and watch the Missouri game, like if they're doing more vertical stuff, then Gilbert's going to be a bigger factor. But I mean that that that's going to go week by week. That's kind of a game plan thing. He also had a really nice game as a blocker in the run game. I thought nice, nice to see. Let's be honest. I, which which is. I mean, we already know he's kind of not Nevin Ingram, who's just not really a blocker. He's kind of a he's. I, I don't think he's going to be totally the the extended receiver exclusively that Kyle Pitts is. I think he's going to be more of like a Travis Kelsey, who, who you can move everywhere, but is also going to be able to you know insert and block in the run game. Yeah. So I think they are definitely moving towards the underclassmen in the, in the depth chart, they haven't officially done that. They just released a depth chart today that hasn't really reflected any movement. Heck, it still has Rosenthal as the starting offensive tackle. Yeah. And we know that's not going to happen um, as he's been suspended indefinitely from the team. But you can see that they're starting to say, okay, we're going to start playing the youth, you know, yeah. uh, particularly on defense. Ojalari had his big game, but Ricks, he's now the second corner. Yeah, even it, if they weren't just focusing on playing youth, he's obviously better. Yeah, he's he's there, and this is a team that's kind of moving on, saying, okay, what? Again, they're looking at what do we have for next year. Now there are some guys that just play because they're awesome. You know, Terrace Marshall is the top example. He's he's auditioning for the NFL and doing quite a good job at it. Yeah, and he's also got. I mean, with Jalen Waddle going down with a just an. A really sucky injury. Oh, that was awful. Just, just awful. I spent the entire offseason talking about how Jalen Wando is going to come in, have this gigantic year, and get himself picked in the top ten. And the fact that he's going to, he'll still go in the first round, but like the fact that he's going to kind of be fighting for like wide receiver three, four, five instead of you know one or two is going to. Honestly, that, in a way that ends up better for you. I mean, no, it doesn't because getting hurt like that is awful. But from a yeah. draft standpoint, now he has a chance of getting drafted by a really good team. Yeah, I'd rather go to you know somebody picking in the twenties than like yeah. Washington. He was good. Yeah, he was going to get drafted by a team like yeah. Washington is a great example. He was going to go, or even like he was going to go in the top ten, and he was going to go to a bad team. Now right. he's going to go to a team with a. He's going to be a piece on a functional offense. Right, and he's that's, the team with a quarterback, probably. Yeah, it, it's unfair because like I, somebody I, f- I forgot somebody mocked him somewhere. I think it was the. Uh, oh, I don't remember who, but it was a team with a really good quarterback. Like, imagine if he were to go to say the Ravens. Yeah, the Ravens could, would love him. They're going to pick a receiver first round, and if they don't, that's crazy. Yeah, as saying this as a Ravens fan, I I am, I would I would kill. <laughs> for a waddle I mean, I, yeah that, that would just be an unfair draft pick and that's the kind of team he's going to go to and yeah it's better for his career but it's it's just worse for his initial paycheck yeah it hurts him but the difference in he wasn't going to get a the number one paycheck he still would have gotten the number two yeah i don't i don't know if it, wide receivers it's hard for them to go top two well, oh, it, no, 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 you, no, not. I, I thought you meant position wise. Oh no, I'm talking like the action because yeah. how they slot no, everything no. nowadays. Far Chase is going number one overall. Yeah, yeah, just wide receivers just don't quite get paid um, like other positions do. Coming straight out of the you know, 
coming straight into the draft. They get paid, but and also wide receivers, he's in a good position even with this injury, which I ho- really, really hope he can recover from full speed because I, I you just hate to see kids get hurt. They're saying the prognosis is okay, so that's yeah. Right. I, I hope he comes back as the player he was because wide receivers project to have long careers. Yeah. I mean, they're not running backs. I mean, you're not as concerned about where you go in the draft because you're going to get, you're going to get that second paycheck, which is where the money is yeah. in the NFL. If you're a running back, you need to go top 10 because <laughs> you need to get paid because you're not going to get that second contract. Yeah, that's true. And running, running back, that's the cruel thing about running back is they are increasingly not going in the top 15. Which is what I don't understand, because if you're just going to use them up, as much as everyone criticized the Cowboys for taking um, – what's his face in the you know, early uh, – Elliot. I think that was a great uh, – the re-signing of him was a mistake. But signing him, you know, getting him in a top 10 pick, that's what you should do. Get a great running back, use him for four years, and then sign another great running back. Right. You know, get- the thing is you can, you, you can get a – like the difference in performance between individual running backs at the NFL level is considerably smaller because everyone's good and it's dependent a lot on schemes and the offensive line. I don't know. Zeke's pretty freaking great. And, right. uh, and like, if you can get him for cheap, because it counts as money. Right. But even a great running back isn't going to like the Panthers lost Bridgewater, or not Bridgewater, the Panthers lost McCaffrey for a couple of weeks and it didn't make a difference. And the Cowboys you know, lose Dalton or lose uh, Prescott and keep Elliott and it's not saving you. Yeah. Yeah. Quarterbacks are quarterbacks. They're, they're the indispensable position in the NFL, which is why they cost like 20% of your cap. But I mean, like so are tackles and guards and every other position, but running back. See, and I think we're going to the point where it's like, you don't pay them, but I do think you can draft them high. I I don't think it's it's quite the more justifiable than paying them. Yeah, I think we tend because also there's certain there's a certain amount of certainty of uh, talent of drafting a running back. Running backs come into the NFL ready to play, yeah, and that's exactly. not quite the same at every other position because as long it's, as they don't have injury issues in college, like Leonard Fournette. Yeah, because he yeah he had the heel and but even he was really productive for his like that's actually the yeah. perfect example. You get it, you got great production on him for four years, and then you cut him. Like the high Jackson injury caught up. They caught up yeah. and it's just not good for the last three years. I mean, Jacksonville got everything they wanted out of that. I mean, they can talk smack about him all they want right now, but he was very productive for him. Just yeah, the, the injuries pile up. Yeah, it's, it's it, especially high ankle stuff that just doesn't really heal right. Yeah, the the NFL is a deeply cynical league that just chews you up and spits you out. But that's so does college. Who you know? Who are we kidding? Oh, yeah, and they're not even getting paid for it. Hey, they get a scot. No, I can't even say that with a straight face. Um, speaking of which, uh, LSU has uh, briefly gone on uh, probation for uh, suspension of eight scholarships for uh, paying players. So they are getting paid just under the table because what happens when you make a market illegal is the market doesn't go away. It just becomes illegal. Bagmen are just the new speakeasies. Yeah, I mean, it's it's silly, but. I don't feel the least bit bad about paying a player. I no. do feel really bad that somebody stole from. Yeah, Lake. I feel bad about the embezzled children's hospital funds. But, but he went to prison last year, so yeah, let's. Way. He's he's yeah he's in jail. So the actual bad part was pr- properly punished 
or not enough. Like, so uh, yeah, I'm definitely not trying to skip over robbing from sick children, which is about as gross as a person can be. I mean, that's cartoonish. Yeah, that, that's evil. How do you just like, how do you sit like a lot of bad people have internal justifications for their actions, but I really can't think of one for, I'm, for, I'm sure he has one. And I think it was like, Oh, this is from the administration. It's not actually from the, I'm stealing from the hospital, which is just the blah, 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 blah. And they waste money on this. You're stealing from sick kids. Let's be honest. Yeah, and that, that's... Don't do that. I'm going to come out in favor <laughs> or I'm going to come out against stealing from sick children. It's a very risky thing I'm doing. I'm doing that tonight on the sneaky good podcast. Poser is against stealing from sick children. I've thought about it for a couple <laughs> days and I've decided that I'm all. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that point counterpoint. Yeah, you know, one of us was going to draw a short straw. <laughs> I, I think that's one of those areas. It's it's safe to say the official position of the Sneaky Good Podcast <laughs> is. Yeah, because you don't want to say I'm in favor of sick children because you're not in favor. Of no, sick no, no, no. Yeah, I, mean, I, I like the children, just not the sick part. I, I prefer they be healthy. <laughs> I'm in favor of making sure that the money used to make them healthy makes them healthy. Yeah. Ah, uh, so. And with that, we also have the Auburn game upcoming. Auburn has benefited from two of the worst calls of the season to uh, win two games. It's always them. It really is. Um, I think even Auburn fans are kind of sheepish about this one. Who was it that said on Twitter uh, Auburn is the most uh, one in four-ish team, a three and two team has ever been or something like that? God, that... It's accurate, but you know, there's always a team like this that's kind of running ahead of its record. I don't think Auburn fans are believers in Auburn right now, but the problem is, is when you start, is you know how we started things. The win matters. What happens is you start winning these games, and it kind of snowballs itself. You think you, you get you they've bought themselves time to find themselves, and yeah. it's not like it's not like LSU can take any team for granted. This is a team that no. lost to Missouri. It lost to Mississippi State. LSU can clearly go into Auburn and lay a turd. Right. But at the same time, Auburn, the, the idea that we are pretending Auburn is a 3-2 and two football team is silly. Because they are, they are, they are, they're not good. They should have, they should, they should be 1-4. and four. What I will it, give them is it, Auburn has a pretty Auburn. good defense. I think what I worry about with them is that they can play defense. I mean, they're not great. I mean, they're not, you know. A I'm not, little bit of defense. I mean, they're, they rank fifth in the conference in yards per play allowed. I mean, it's. This year? They, yeah, this year. Well, you know, last year they were great. Uh, right. But this, this year, among this year's SEC defenses, I mean, only Georgia's is really great. Beyond Georgia and Alabama, it's just, it's an abyss. Yeah, but Auburn actually is allowing yes less yards per play than Alabama, including Alabama. It's an abyss. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying Auburn can play defense. I'm not going to say that they are. This is not last year's Auburn defense. They, you know, they last year's Auburn defense was great, um, oh. but this is a good defense. They, they can. They. It's. What's funny is Mississippi State ranks as the best in the SEC right now in yards per play. So technically, we've already played the best defense in the SEC by statistics. Um, that's no one believes that. No. Um, 
But the point is, is that LSU was going to play a good defensive team. And that's going to present some problems for the offense, which has look LSU's offense has been great so far. I'm, I don't okay. Step I'll step off from great, but it's been really good. There has not there has been the kind of step back that you would expect from losing all the talent, but not into the abyss. They are right, still they are still a really good offense. Auburn is a good defense. Like they're not quite at really the thing is is Auburn's offense is Bo Nix is real bad. Yeah, that I think that's a difference. And if Auburn can put up points on LSU's defense, oh my god. You know, what are we doing? Uh, yeah, but at the same time, like Mississippi State did, and Mississippi State is a similar, oh my god, level of awful. Yeah, but they at least have a run a freaky offense. That's true. That's true. Auburn. I mean, the, I I am a little worried. Well, I, I I'm worried because you know LSU can't really play defense, but I think they're just going to get the ball run down their throat on some really basic concepts. And that's the thing with Mississippi State. Let's go back to that. This is Mississippi State's passing yards by game. All right, six hundred twenty-three. You know, against LSU, SEC record, uh, three thirteen, two seventy-five, two nineteen. Okay, it's getting progressively work, but worse. But they can throw the ball a little bit, it, it, even in the abstract. Without the LSU game, they're still at least a good passing team. Their rushing mm-hmm. yards are nine eighty-seven twenty, and then negative two. Right, and they were. Don't run the ball. Yeah, they do not run the ball. Um, of all the problems LSU has had, LSU is much worse, has been much worse, strangely enough, even with uh, two great corners and a terrific pass rush. Their pass defense has been far more atrocious than their run defense. But South Carolina hurt LSU pretty badly with the run game. Yeah, I mean, like, that's that's really only by default. I mean, LSU's rush defense has been horrendous, too, for a lot of the same reasons. It's just less bad because, you know, bad run defense isn't as severe as bad pass defense because passing is generally more efficient and more explosive. But like the LSU run defense has been horrific. Like they don't they don't they don't know what gaps to fit. They they're not particularly great at tackling, but the bigger problem is that they just don't know what their gap assignments are. Even Jacoby Stevens doesn't. Yeah, and my point though is they're allowing 4.2 yards per carry. And that's mediocre. They're not in the atrocious levels of like Vanderbilt and Ole Miss. Those are atrocious run defenses. They're, they're allowing like six yards a carry. Um, Yeah. Uh, And that's what makes you nervous. I think that's the best part for LSU from how they've lined up so far. They've been destroyed by passing teams. They've been, I don't want to say good against the run. I do not want to go that far. But I don't want to go as far as atrocious. Well, just, I mean, against Mississippi State, they were good against the run because Mississippi State ran the ball about a grand total of, like, one time. Yeah, they, and, they just don't run the ball. And the other team was Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt is bad at everything except for, you know, going to class. Um, Missouri's got a great runner, though. And yeah, Missouri rushed for about five, you know, over five yards of carry. South Carolina, I think, is the team that really hurt them on the ground. Right, South Carolina. And when I was looking at the tape, like it wasn't just that, you know, all right, they got beat by some gimmicky scheme, like what happened against Ole Miss last year, when they just kind of got, they kind of got, basically, what happens when you're not prepared to play a triple option team and it goes really, really wrong. 
Um, but like they were just, you know, running pretty basic concepts and guys were in the wrong gaps. Like they don't know what they're doing in the run game either. And yeah, I, I don't want to go as far as saying it's been good, but once again, like as I talked about the Missouri game, the run defense was not good, but Missouri three, was, yeah. he went 29 for 35 passing. That's an 82.9% com, you know, completion rate. The pass defense is truly atrocious. Right. And if there's one thing that we're getting out of this is that we're going up against Bo Nix and Auburn can always run the football. So there's that worry, but at least Auburn doesn't do the thing well that we cannot cover. Yeah. But neither does Missouri. Yeah. I mean, I mean like it, it, yes, it's Bo Nix, but it was also Connor Basilak. Yeah. But also you look at it and you know, like Mizzou, you know, they now, they completed 66% of their pass against Bama for 253 yards. They completed 70% of their pass against Kentucky for 201 yards. Those are those are good numbers. I mean, once again, it's not like earth-shattering, but Missouri right, showed they can the, throw the, the ball. Hand, look what Mississippi – like Mississippi State put up a few yards, but if you look at like yards per attempt and success rate particularly – Oh, that's just crazy. Yeah, the, the, the Mississippi State game is just – yeah, that's just totally – Yeah. Yeah. But I, I would say the big thing is that LSU matches up a little bit better with Auburn from a strength weakness. You know, how about this relative strength, relative weakness, right. because the well, defense is re- yeah, and the defense is still atrocious. I'm not in any way trying to say that LSU's defense has looked good, even though let's be honest, it did look a little bit better against South Carolina because it had some measures of competence. Yeah, it was. Ju- it, the thing is, it wasn't just. Like, it they were generally competent outside from, you know, a bunch of chunk plays. But, like, against Missouri and Mississippi State, it was the 8, 9, you know, 15-yard gains and the chunk plays. Like, yes. So there is improvement. And the question is, is, do you think Auburn can do those 8, 9, 15-yard chunk plays in addition to those big plays? And we agree the big plays are coming. Yeah, I mean, but maybe. Maybe by accident against this defense. See, and I, I don't think they can consistently do it. I I feel good about our chances in this one. It, once again, yeah. it's I it's hard it's hard to be very confident about anything with this LSU team, but I want to say it feels like they kind of turned a corner against South Carolina. It wasn't maybe it wasn't South Carolina did just beat Auburn. Yeah, so we'll see. But that's your very informal Auburn preview, which. You know, if LSU wins that game, all of a sudden we're thinking of the season a lot differently. I mean, yeah, you have the Bama game coming, but if you can be three and three, if you can be three and three after the Alabama game, after the start they had, I will be. I'll be pleased. Yeah, every game left on the schedule after that is at least winnable. Mm-hmm, for sure. I mean, Ole Miss is winnable. Yeah, Texas even is winnable. The problem is, is that there's no guaranteed wins. So yeah. let's. Let's just see how the team looks against Auburn. I think this is a very good test to see where the team is. That is for sure. And with that, let's go to the mailbag. All right. Vinny Barles is going to start us off with a non-football question. All right. Does the possibility of the Lakers and Dodgers both winning championships, and he has an asterisk with championships. We'll get to that in a moment. Cement 2020 as the darkest possible timeline. (laughs) 
And the asterisk is, these are not real championships. They don't really count. Nothing anyone says will convince me otherwise. Fake World Series. Right down the road from me. I haven't gone. Yeah. World Series. I just can't get tickets. Um, first of all, I do think they're real championships. If anything, it's actually harder to win a championship in the Corona year because there's more playoff to go through. Um, so I'm not discounting anybody's championship. And it's not like my team's won. So it's not like, you know, though the stars came close. That was nice. Um, but I do think it's, these are real championships and they count. Is this the darkest? No, because it's not New York winning. I mean, as much as we all hate LA, it's at least it's not New York. I mean, it could have been the Yankees and the Knicks. That would have been much worse. Well, it couldn't have been the Knicks. That's Oh yeah, that's true. That's ridiculous. The Knicks winning a title. <laughs> I mean, what is it? 1970? <laughs> yeah, that's never going to happen in, again in yeah, the world. I, yeah, when it comes to the Knicks, like I have no animosity built up towards the Knicks whatsoever. Yeah, it, it, uh, it's like the really Yankees. hard. Yeah. yeah, it's like the at least it's not the yeah. If it was the Lakers and the Yankees, that'd be the worst. There you go. Because it's the Lakers and the Yankees. Um, Lakers winning is obnoxious, but you know whatever. It's what if it were the Clippers and the Mets? Oh, that's the, I'm actually the only person who hates the Mets because of Baltimore reasons. Um, I don't think that's a yeah. dark timeline. I think it's a fun timeline because but that is a fun timeline. I, yeah. I understand objectively that's the correct answer. Clippers Mets would be fun. But as a Baltimore guy, I hope the Mets uh, burn and you know fall into the bottom of the ocean. Not anymore. Uh, We're about to be delivered from evil. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's the Mets. So I, I you know, uh, and look, the, the Mets did pay it forward. Nineteen sixty nine does get paid back a little bit by beating the Red Sox in eighty six. So I do appreciate that that they spread that pain around. Um, you, you do get a lot of mileage out of that one. Um, I mean, I feel like the Wilpons were enough of a a punishment for any grievance anybody could ever have against the Mets. My team is still owned by Peter Angelos, and no, I do not forgive. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so speaking of timelines, Brad Falk uh, asks, if Drunk History called you and said they were featuring you, what story would you focus on that you felt just good enough to tell? Mine would be about the Cajun people or Dolly Parton after Whitney covered her song, which she has done philanthropically as its own show. Uh, yeah, Dolly is the best. She really is. I think I would do the Red Tails. You're going to have to elaborate? For drug history, I, I, you're going to do the Red Tails? No, you know, I, 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 I don't know if that's far. I don't know what the, the barometer for how long ago something had to have been for drunk history. It could be anything. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I just think it's one of the most inspirational stories in American history. That, you know, they they fought for a country because simply because they believed in the promise of its ideals and that they could one day come home and and make lives, you know, make their lives better for them and people of their race. I think that's awesome. If I was doing I would probably do the Colfax Massacre leading to the the case of the United States versus Cruikshank, where um, the Supreme Court basically ruled that the federal government uh, couldn't prosecute people for murdering black people. And that Supreme Court case has never been overruled and still in the books. So and it's actually sort of the basis of our 14th Amendment jurisprudence. So yay. But that's a little dark. That's uh, <laughs> um, also, drunk history got canceled. And that's very sad. I know. 
Um, but I figure if I was invited to the drunk history, it would probably be because of, I mean, I write about LSU history, so it'd have to be LSU related. So I would probably do the 1908 team, which I think is really fascinating, not just because I think they do deserve the title, but I think them getting hosed out of the title by Grantland Rice trying to prop up Vanderbilt is really interesting and kind of all the allegations thrown at LSU when everybody else was just as guilty is really, I, I think it shows like who can, it's sort of like how the media controls things. I think the 1908 team is just truly fascinating. Um, also, I'd like to say that I have written probably now written online more about Troy Middleton than any other person. And that is not, wouldn't really fit drunk history's demographic, but I think just talking about Troy Middleton at LSU is really, he's a really interesting guy. If we can do sports, 10 cent beer night. Oh yeah. 10 cent beer night. The greatest night in the history of sports. There you go. Almost as good as disco demolition night. Cause it also resulted in a riot. You know, anytime it results in a riot, I'm with you. Any Anytime you can get professional athletes forming a rear guard with sports equipment, that is awesome. So, but yeah, I, I think if I'm going as the LSU guy, I, I think because his name's now been sandblasted off of uh, the buildings for being the racist guy, I think Troy Middleton, I think he deserves better than that, uh, particularly considering we have buildings that are named after guys who actually own slaves. Yeah, I mean, if he didn't own slaves, he can't be worse than, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, guys who fought in the Civil War right, as generals. Yeah, for the wrong for the, for the <laughs> wrong guys. For the baddies. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I feel that Middleton has become such a political issue, and I think they've sort of overstated their case. And also, completely deleted everything he did after uh, leaving LSU, which, you know, he integrated the state police. And he also was the president of LSU when it opened up the New Orleans campus, which was integrated from the very first day. So I'm not saying he's a perfect dude, but he's more complex than he has been reduced to. We tend to vilify people of history because we're looking at them through a lens that wasn't possible when those people were living their lives. And we forget that people are capable of change. I think, yeah, I think I think we're a little too cynical sometimes to think yeah. that someone is genuine in their change too. Like I, I think that's what bothers me is that Troy Middleton clearly has a later in life I don't want to say conversion, but he definitely did things later in life towards integration and reconciliation. I mean the man won awards you know, from Louisiana and national offices for the things he did, not at LSU, but, you know, with the state police and just in the state in general. And that just completely, the fact that there's no, oh, this guy might have changed is never even thought of it. But also, it erases all the really cool, look, the guy won the Battle of the Bulge, which, you know, he beat the Nazis. So let's give him a little bit of props. But also, man handled two of the biggest corruptions, academic corruption scandals in collegiate history. He did it at both West Point and LSU. He came in after major, major scandals and got those schools and rehabbed their reputations, particularly LSU, which at the time was considered a third-rate school. 
and had been plundered by the hayride and got LSU to be a real university. With, without Troy Middleton, LSU is a podunk school that had been robbed blind. That there is, is a compelling case. Yeah, there, there is probably not a person more important than Troy Middleton in LSU's history in making LSU a great university. Was he racist? Yes, he was. But I do think the other side of the ledger does kind of balance it. And if you want to take his name off the library, you can take his name off the library. That's not really what matters. But for him to be like the example of racism and held up and vilified when he's the guy who saved the school from academic and financial ruin and, you know, built the library. Let's, you know, uh, he, he fought the football team and got a library built. That would never happen today. Yeah. Well, it almost didn't happen then. Well, with the the kind of money coming in from TV contracts these days, the football team could build a library and still have plenty left over for themselves. And they should build a library because our library is in terrible condition. So the fact that they have extra money and they're not building, I think that's the most important thing. We need to just build a library. I don't care whose name goes on it. All right. So segueing more towards football, Vinny Barles has a great question. Which SEC coach makes it furthest on the Great British Bake Off? And follow-up question, would you rather watch Great British Bake Off or the original Japanese Iron Chef? Oh, the original Iron Chef. Can we all agree? Oh, absolutely. When he eats the the pepper, oh, that's just... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've only seen Master Chef Junior, so... Oh, my God, just... I wanted to see Gordon Ramsay <laughs> yell at kids, and he didn't. <laughs> He's really sweet with the kids. He's really good with I them. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like who would be really good at the Bake Off. It's oh, that's a uh... that's a good one. I mean, like, cause so many SEC coaches are angry, and I don't think it really. They're not cooking desserts. They're cooking dinner. Well, it's it's not just that. It's it's like there's a certain mentality of the Bake Off. It's it's very uh, um, you know just look at the personalities. Yeah, of the, like, of like the various I coaches. Over, I think I'm going with Jeremy Pruitt. I think that's a good one. I think Orgeron can cook, but I don't think he'd be good on the show because I think he's too intense. Yeah, I think I think someone like even Sam Pittman at you know Arkansas, yeah. like he seems like he's not quite as crazy as a lot of SEC coaches. Ah. <sighs> This this may be a terrible one, but what about Kirby? Uh, maybe. Kirby. No, I, I think I'm still going to go with Pruitt. That, that, that's, that's Pruitt, I like. Pick. I, I like. Pruitt. I think Pruitt's a good. Answer. I'm going to go. Pruitt is the right answer. I think he would do very well. You know, because it's very collegial. It's it's a good chill down show. I'm a big fan. All right. So Jason Kalmeyer wants to know insights into Racy's absence within the offense and. DT play? Well, so I mean... Take which one you want first. Is the, the offense really isn't that new. Did, did the question say new offense? Well, you say Racy McMath. Like how, yeah. No, his absence within the offense, just in yeah. general for, for the game. Should we read anything into that, really? Nah. <sighs> 
I mean, he's not taken the step that I thought he was going to. Um, And I just think he's getting swept up by by a little bit of a youth movement in what is becoming a lost season competitively. Uh, But, yeah, I just don't think he's taken that step. Yeah, I think part of it, we talked about this before, I do think part of it's the youth movement. But I also just think it's it's kind of random every week who has a big game. There's just a lot of mouths to feed. And he's kind of getting lost in the shuffle, but – I mean, he still has 100 yards receiving. He's not. He hasn't been awful. He hasn't totally disappeared. All right, and how about those defensive tackles? <sighs> I mean, Ika had a pretty good game, at least at least according to a PFF. But like, I mean, they haven't necessarily been great. Uh, but they, I mean, I also wouldn't say they've been notable enough to be the problem. They haven't been good, but they haven't. And Iga is showing signs, but yeah. Yeah, he, yeah. Like, we just talked, the the defense generated a pass rush for the first time. It was all coming from the outside. Yeah, I mean, it's all- awesome. And all, it was either that or a safety coming up. It was not coming from the defensive tackles. But it's also so hard for defensive tackles to make a big impact in the 4-3. I mean, they're, I mean, they're holding up, you know, holding up people. The linebackers can make tackles, and your two ends can be the stars. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not quite as bad as the three-four, but they're just not the they're they're just not notable enough to be, be like a major point of discussion at this point. Like there are other things to think about with these with this defense. Yeah, they haven't been great, haven't been bad, but. No one in the defense should be throwing themselves a party right now, except for B. Joe Ojolari, and of course uh, Derek Stingley. Uh, Derek Stingley's still awesome. So, okay, so combining talk of the defense with Poser's love of history, our final question comes from Rich C. Miller, who wants to know scariest LSU defender of all time. Oof. Huh. Well, I like Michael Brooks. I think Michael Brooks is a terrifying defender, particularly playing with Eric Hill. Um, I do think it's a guy from the 80s and the 90s because uh, the rules were different back then. You were allowed to hurt people. (laughs) Um, I I think guys now, I mean, they're very athletic, uh, but the rules are in place where you can't really headhunt like you used to. I think LeRon Landry. Oh, my God. Landry. Um, He was incredible. But honestly, like Clarence LeBlanc, Geez, that man killed people. I mean, he wasn't a great player, but LeBlanc looked to hurt you. Um, Chad Jones was a pretty scary player. He, I mean, he I thought he killed that Arkansas guy. That's probably who would be at the top of my list. Dragon pro- was pretty scary, too. Um, I'd, I'd probably say LaRon Landry just because that guy just uh, – he just – annihilated people. Also, I think playing together, uh, Gabe Northern with James Gilliard. Ooh, uh, yeah. They, they were insane. Um, G- Gabe had the more highlight hit when he, you know, knocked off Steven Davis's head and that was kind of great. But I think Gilliard was actually the more terrifying of the two on a down by down basis. He was the kind of guy who you felt might stab you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ramsey Dardar is kind of on that list as well. Um, that's early eighties. He, he was a guy you felt, 
But I think I keep, I keep going back to LeBron Landry. He's an incredibly skilled player who also was without conscience. Uh, he, he had some predatory hits that are grossly illegal in today's game. And uh, I loved him for it. I, 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 I miss violence. I really do. I, I, I love violent play. I'm not going to lie. I know why it's illegal. It's good that it's illegal. It's better for everybody involved so they don't get hurt and stuff. But as a guy sitting on the couch, there is nothing like watching a safety <laughs> just just ear hole some poor dude like a missile. Um, so, yeah. Final answer, Lamont Landry. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Landry. But, like, the other thing is if it's – if it's in, it depends what position I'm playing. Like if I'm running back, well, no, it doesn't, because if I get into space, Landry's going to kill me. Uh, but yeah. like if if it were outside of a football setting and it were just like we're in an alley doing like an Oklahoma drill, but then I don't know. Drake Nevis is pretty scary too. Drake Nevis is pretty terrible. Once again, Ramsey Dardar I think went to prison, so that. Oh, that's, that, that's that was, also. Um, oh man, there's. Oh no, he's a running back. I was going to say Art Cantrell. Uh, the stories they tell about Art Cantrell back in the '60s. Um, that dude was terrifying. Um, not just field of play, but they would talk about like what this guy did off the field. Like he was another one of those players. He was trying to hurt you, and once again, I. I, I I totally enjoyed that. I know it's not the right thing to say. You're not supposed to admit that, but violence is part of the appeal. And I'm not trying to let, I'm not ranting against the rules. I think they are right to have changed the rules, but you know, the crow magnum part of my brain does kind of miss it. Yeah. And I also think that defense is a little bit illegal with pass interference though. I think they're overcalling pass interference, which is not really a safety thing. Yeah. That's because they want to open up offense that, our entire lives have moved to make it harder and harder to play defense. And I'm actually, I like the rule changes of the last five, 10 years more than I did 15 to 20 years ago. Cause I think 15, 20 years ago, it was like some of the pass interference rules were just, Hey, you can't play defense. Now it's, Hey, don't hurt people. (laughs) You're not allowed to aim for the head. That makes a lot more sense. Yes, it does. It definitely does. And as hard as it is to control, you, you have to disincentivize it in some way, just to just to have the players at least try to avoid, you know, yeah, I, ramming each other. I would like to see it go to like how you know, they have in basketball, where you have two levels of a flagrant. <laughs> yeah, for now, sure, sure. I do wish there was one. that's like, hey, you hit him in the head. You didn't mean, but we don't see intent. It's just a fifteen-yard penalty, but you could stay in the game. And then there's the, you hit him in the head, you were targeting, you're ejected. Uh, I think there could be two levels. There definitely needs to be two levels because you're seeing guys getting thrown out of games where you know they didn't intend to do that. It's just the the, the nature of the way the play developed, you know, guy changes direction a microsecond. You can't change your own direction a microsecond. It, yeah, there, there's got to be some kind of leeway there. I, I totally I was, agree. we got to have two levels Texas of it. Baylor game, the Texas-Baylor game, I think a Texas player got thrown out of the game on a really ticky-tacky headshot. And actually, I think they overturned the suspension yesterday or today. But, yeah, it's just – I do think there's a difference between guys who are truly predatory 
that's a suspension. But also, like, the one we know, like, when Devin White got that was suspended. Targeting, though. Yeah, I know. But, like, if you give him a 15-yard flag, you can at least say, okay, well, it's a 15-yard flag, yeah, whatever. Okay. It's You just need to be careful about how you hit. Uh, I get it. But there was clearly no intent in that one. But at the same time, like, in the Fiesta Bowl, they earhole Burrow yeah. when he's not looking, which is literally why the rule exists. And they don't call anything. It is just mind-boggling to me. I mean, that's what a defensive – the whole point of these rules was to protect quarterbacks and kickers on on plays like that when they're not looking. Because people used to seek out quarterbacks on interceptions and ear holes. Yeah, uh, and, and we don't – the whole point of passing targeting was to not do that anymore. And – I don't like that that can go unflagged while, you know, Devin White can miss the first half of the next game for a very, very borderline call where there's clearly no intent. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's pretty uncontroversial among college football fans. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, look, I know refs have a hard job and I also think it'd be better. I, I do like how the big 12 this week, you know, they reviewed the tape and said, you know what? We got this one wrong. We're not going to suspend him for the next yeah, game. I think it's nice to see when officials can say, hey, we made a mistake. In the heat, we can make a mistake in the heat of the moment as well, and there's not going to be an ongoing penalty for it. So, Yeah, I mean, I'll for, like as generally when like if an official goes out and says, hey, we got it wrong, I'll generally say, you know what? Yeah, that happens, whatever. Except so. for the Texas A&M game. Or any time a call involves Auburn. So let's hope yeah, we can avoid the standard Auburn officiating this weekend. And with that, go Tigers. Go Tigers.